welcome to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a product of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Eric Dorfman and Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Hello, welcome to another episode of Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Dorfman, Director and CEO of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And I'm Dr. Dan Dombrowski, Chief Veterinarian at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Our guest today is going to be Dr. Greg Lubart. He's a professor of aquatic animal medicine at the North Carolina State University College of Vet Medicine. Greg has a lot to tell us about exotic animals, strange pets, and wildlife species that he works on as a veterinarian. He has so many interesting things to say. We're going to jump right to the interview after this break. Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Each episode explores our connection with nature on a personal, physical, and scientific level that enables us to live better and more responsibly on the planet. This podcast was made possible by a donation from the Burt's Bees Foundation and Burt's Bees to the Friends of the Museum of Natural Sciences. Now, on to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Lubart. He's a veterinarian and professor of aquatic medicine at the North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Greg is interested in fish. He's an exotic animal and wildlife medicine veterinarian. He works with lots of species from the rare and exotic things that slither and crawl. Greg's going to talk to us today about his adventures as a veterinarian working with fish and wildlife and exotic species. Welcome, Greg. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, great to have you. Really, really good to talk. Well, I've got lots of questions, but why don't you, Dan, you can... Sure, sure. So. Greg, just to, to start off with, I, I think that um, we've talked a little bit about the, the podcast and sort of our, our ideas about biophilia and, and our love for nature. And I, I think that's uh, what, what I'd love to talk to you about today is your role as a veterinarian looking at wildlife species and, and really people and pets and exotic pets and kind of how that fits into your love for nature and, and you know, your, your vision of sort of where we are in the world. To start with, if you could tell us a little bit about your, your background. I know you've done a lot of cool things with a lot of cool species. So start with that and we can kind of go from there. It would be great. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. And I'll just start by saying I'm a pretty lucky guy. I've got a, a great job. I've had some uh, wonderful opportunities that I couldn't have even imagined. And um, a lot of that is just, I think, simply by pursuing some interests, you know, pursuing my passion. I went to a small college in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg College. I really didn't know what I was in for. I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian <laughs> from the time I was about 14. I volunteered for Dr. Phil Bookman until I was 16. And then he hired me as his camel boy, animal restrainer, surgical assistant, you name it. It was a one doctor practice. I learned a lot and I still wanted to be a vet. I went to college, really wasn't prepared for the academic rigors and um, just barely treaded water enough to stay there after the first year. Wow. Uh, but I hung in there, stayed with my interest in the profession, worked again for another veterinarian when I was a senior, knew I wasn't getting into vet school, fell in love with invertebrate zoology and marine biology my, my senior year. Had a very instrumental in my career, very impactful mentor named Dr. Robert Barnes. He knew I wasn't getting into vet school. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was a different climate in 1981. There weren't as many schools. People didn't move around as much, but I was a, I had a Pennsylvania residency. So I applied to graduate school to get my grades up. And I knew that was, if I ever wanted to be a vet, I knew I was going to have to show my academic chops, you know? So yeah, I went yeah. to graduate school in Boston at Northeastern University and focused on, had some, a great mentor there too, Dr. Reiser. And I studied a little polychaete worm that lived between sand grains. I mean, this thing was five millimeters long. Mm. Boston opened my eyes to so much. I worked at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. 
I worked at a Angel Memorial Animal Clinic, still trying to keep the vet, my hand in the vet medicine thing. Although I wavered for a while. I, I wobbled. I almost thought about going to do a PhD instead, but I stuck with vet med. And on my third time, I finally got in to UPenn, University of Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And I went there already with the idea by that time that I was going to be an aquatic animal med- uh, veterinarian. I actually saw myself working in an aquarium like the New England Aquarium because I had volunteered there in Boston. So how many veterinarians were at aquariums then? Like, that's pretty rare, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> so in 1988, when I got out of vet school, there were no full-time veterinarians at aquariums in this country. Now, SeaWorld had full-time vets, and any aquarium with marine mammals had legally had to have a veterinarian at least uh, on a contract or retainer just because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But there were some pioneers. You know, I'm not in that in that group, like Michael Stoskov was a veterinarian at the National Aquarium in Baltimore as a part-time veterinarian. He was probably working full-time, but that sort of genre of veterinarian hadn't come to be yet. And I thought that's what I want to do. But I also saw, I love marine mammals and sea turtles. That's what I really wanted to do. But that was hard to do when it was, you just couldn't get that experience readily. So I started working in a pet shop in West Philadelphia to learn about fish. Wow, that's a, well, I'm a guy. It's going yeah. right to the, <laughs> the source, isn't it? Into the source, Trade Winds Pet Store. So I saw fish as a, a great opportunity to get hands on. And I wasn't a hobbyist. I didn't keep aquariums as a kid. In fact, I never even had an ichthyology course. And oh. I could, when fish were sick, I could bring them back to the vet school and dissect them and learn about them, get some hands on. And that's what really, that little minimum wage job after school and on weekends springboarded me into what I do because the guy that sold this little pet store fish, he was a pretty big player in tropical fish wholesale industry. He had some sick fish, heard about this vet student. I came over, I looked at him and um, my fourth year, April of my fourth year, month before graduating, I didn't have any options and he offered me a job. And so I took a full-time job in the ornamental fish industry, corporate medicine uh, for about four and a half years. And then this job opened up in 1992 and I couldn't sniff this job today with my training, but at the time there just weren't, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond. There weren't many of us. Yeah. And so I, they were looking for a clinical fish vet and there were already a couple here, but I had uh, this sort of private industry hands-on angle. I guess they, someone liked it, and that's my story. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so once I came here, then I could really, you know, when someone had a hit-by-car turtle, they said, oh, Lou Bart will see it. Oh, there's a snake. Oh, I'll see it. And, you know, I started... It's almost with, a fish. <laughs> yeah. And I, start, I started working with the museum in the... 1993, 1994, before when it was in the old ag building. And I met Dan shortly after that. Yeah, I remember those days. So I saw this fantastic little clip of you caring for goldfish. I mean, I never, the, the lady on the, it was it WRAL um, saying, don't flush your goldfish, take yeah. it to Dr. Lubart, right? That's, I mean, I never imagined you could fix a goldfish if it was sick. Like it was just like you switch it on or switch it off if it's not okay. They're the best clients. Like of all my clients, we probably only see a small percentage of people with sick goldfish. But when we see them, (laughs) Dan can tell you. I mean, Dan and I put a, surgically put a flotation device on a goldfish named Dragon Boy about 15 (laughs) years ago. When people are willing to bring their goldfish to the vet, they're all in. There's a doctor who lives in Charlotte. She brings her goldfish here once or twice a year to have its its when trimmed. This is a big growth on the head right. that overgrows yeah. its eyes. And we see about one pet fish a week here. You know, this is a fish with a name. This isn't, you know, some it's in someone's pond or their tank. And that, you know... 50 fish a year is, you're not going to survive on that, but it's a nice steady caseload that helps train our students and residents. 
It's amazing. Getting back to this wonderful little clip, there was this woman's kneeling by the side of her koi pond saying, you know, she spends lots of money on keeping her fish okay. Dogs and cats return love, right? They they cuddle you. Goldfish don't do that. They might eat bread out of your hand. What what is it that attracts people so much to to goldfish that they will take it and 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 have a surgical flotation device fit? I think so I do believe there is a human animal bond that you can have a human animal bond with a gold, with a fish. And it doesn't have to be a physical bond, like a physical, you pet them, stroke them bond. Although we have plenty of clients that touch their fish, uh, the fish eat out of their hand. I'm not making this up. There was a goldfish that came here for a procedure and the owner brought it in, in a five gallon bucket and she filled out the paperwork and you know these were the days where the owners came into the building and you could talk to them and shake their hands <laughs> and then she left and then she ran back in she said oh my goodness i forgot to kiss bubbles and he reached down into the bucket grabbed the fish picked it up kissed it on the lips and put it back in the bucket now, amazing that I've only seen that once, <laughs> but she kisses her fish every day. Wow. And I know Dana knows people that kiss their lizards and don't recommend it. Right. There's also a longevity factor that I think she's the woman in the clip. I treated one of her goldfish that was 30 years old. Right. So I think people, they almost identify with these animals as sort of a like a milepost in their life. Mm. They think, oh my God, I got this fish in college and you know, my first boyfriend gave it to me. And then it was there for my kids. You know what I mean? That they, they almost become like part of the environment and they that attachment is sort of a really deep attachment, emotional. And then they feel obligated and they want to do what's right for them. Mm. What do we have? My wife's a veterinarian also. What do we have at home? Three dogs and a cat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dog and cat guy all the way. I had in my last job, we had a baby alligator that, that everyone said that, of course, maybe they're just being nice, but that he had more of a relationship with me than anybody else. And I could pick him up. And even when he was as long as my arm, pet his little head and he closes his eyes and open his mouth and yoink at me, you know, and he's like two and a half feet long or something. I don't know. And it tore me apart to send him back because he was just too big to manage. I read in an article recently that, you know, keeping a, it's like keeping a dinosaur, right? You know, they're, they're primitive animals. And, and yet people who are passionate about their taxon like alligators or goldfish or snowy owls, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know, they're just passionate about these things. What kind of bond do we have with them? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting, does the fish want to be kissed? I don't know. There are these individual bonds too. Yeah. One of the hardest cases, and I'll never forget it. It was an alligator, juvenile alligator owned by one of the aquariums. And it was really attached to this aquarist and vice versa. It would sit on her shoulder like a baby, mm. sat in the exam room with it. It came in, it had a, had a fractured femur. So it didn't have a life-threatening injury. I don't know what happened. That this, things didn't go well with the anesthesia. And the surgery was a success, but the patient died. Right. It was, yeah. that's one of the hardest cases I've had to like talk with the, it wasn't even an owner per se, but a lot of times the, the husbandry professionals, aquarists or keepers are like an owner. And that was a hard one. And that was an alligator. Right. You know, I had an owner with an iguana that died that I recommended she seek professional help for. Oh, wow. Yeah, she had this this iguana. Their whole life revolved around this iguana. They kept their house at 80 degrees. In the four years or so, four years, I guess, they had this iguana. They only traveled once. It was to their only son's wedding. 
And when they went to the wedding, they hired a vet student for a hundred dollars a day to look after this iguana. And, um, when it died, she held it for at least 24 hours. Like it was dead and she couldn't let it go. And I was worried about her. She rallied, but people definitely, they form these bonds. So what we kind of do here, and I guess it plays into the core of the topic of, of these animals as pets, of exotic animal pets, is we sort of, or not sort of, we, we just treat them all pretty much the same. In other words, if you bring your goldfish in or your snake or your Kodamundi, mm. the exam is $80. Oh, wow. Right. You know what I mean? Like you don't get... <laughs> discount for, for poiclotherms or something. Right. You don't get the, well, I only paid, I wanted at the fair discount. You don't get <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, does, it can change. You know, if, if we end up doing surgery on a fish, well, generally we do our own anesthesia and we have our own surgical areas. So it, it would be cheaper because we're not involving, we may not be involving the anesthesiologists or one of the main operating rooms. The CAT scans for exotics are a little bit cheaper. And some owners, if not most, they, they have a line. You know, that line's movable, but they might say, well, I can spend. I mean, it's not unusual for someone to spend $500 on a goldfish. Right. But I don't know anybody yeah. that spent 5000 You know what I mean? Or that we could even do $5,000 worth. So usually by the time they've agreed to come in to the to see a veterinarian, whether it's here or one of the practices in the area, they're they're pretty committed financially um, to help their pet. Right. So, so, so Greg, Eric and I, we talk a lot about the connections people have with, with nature and wildlife and, and sort of this idea of biophilia that it's really good for people. It's healthy for people to have that connection and kind of see that, that role in, in wildlife. Folks that have these exotic pets, like wh- where do you think that connection is or that line is? Do you think, do you think that's their way of expressing sort of these, these innate connections they have with, with nature that maybe they're not getting other ways or, or what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think, I think it's a way for people to embrace or immerse themselves themselves in nature or the natural world in a more intimate way than just, say, reading a book or watching TV. Although I think that books and TV jumpstart the program, you know? Yeah. Um, they are like, wow, that's so cool. Chameleons can do this and that, and they have opposable thumbs and they change colors and their tongue is 18 inches long. And how oh, we really cool to get one. Then I could really know about it and learn about it and watch it and kind of I own it. It's not right. The right word, but there's sort of a Possess is what possess I thought. It. Yeah. yeah, possess that nature at a deeper level. And I think that we definitely see that in aquariums. Like, I mean, if you really want to see healthy corals and, well, healthy marine fish, go on a scuba or snorkel trip. I mean, that's where mm-hmm. you're really going to – but yeah, I yeah. think people – and they take pictures and videos, but then they – I think it's a craving – or a, or a need, they, they're, it's not enough, you know, I got, I got a, I need a bigger taste of that. And then they'll build a reef tank. And as more people do this, that, te- I mean, Dan can tell you the technology for reef aquariums has exploded in the last 20 years. And a lot of that's just from people are pretty resourceful and, and creative and innovative. But I do think, I don't think it's always good. I think sometimes like too much of a good thing, right? Or too much of anything. And people get in over their heads and they get in, they get species they probably shouldn't keep. Like venomous snakes, that's an example. I mean, some people keep venomous snakes or we call them hot snakes. Hot snakes, fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. Dan knows that term. And, you know, if you think, well, why, like you could argue, why would someone want a snake? And I had a snake for 35 years. It was a, a ball python. And, and I think you could make a case for that. That was actually one I adopted that was not doing well, 
But then why would someone want to own a snake that could hurt them or hurt someone they love, an innocent person, innocent in that they didn't decide to keep it? And I think it goes back to the sort of wanting to possess nature or wanting to harness it or experience it. Probably my biggest animal pet peeve is people that indiscriminately kill snakes. Just as here it is, a snake doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. If it doesn't have legs, I'll kill it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah, good snake is a dead snake is what right. we hear and a that's lot. So common. Yeah. I'm not asking people to like snakes or own snakes. And I'm even okay if someone has a copperhead in their garage or in their kids' play area to kill it. Educate yourself, you know, know what you're looking at because so many non-venomous rat snakes and decay snakes are killed because people think they're baby copperheads. Educating, and that's hard. You need that. You got to get get kids when they're young. And I think the museum does does that well. Mm. Well, this is the thing too that I I found. You know, we have this sort of fascination, love, hate, terror, attraction to predators, right? Snakes, sharks, mm. spiders. Like it's the kind of thing that you can't look away from, even though it's kind of horrifying to some people. I mean, I love all those animals, but. Um, you know, there's this real kind of visceral emotion, emotional response to those kinds of animals. Yeah, and I mean, that's what that's what people want to see when they go to a, an aquarium. Sharks, and they want yeah. to see big sharks. And they want to see things that, you're right, they want to see venomous fish, you know, yeah. electric yeah. fish, and... That's why I guess Shark Week is so huge. Right. No one wants to be bitten or eaten by a shark, but everybody kind of like wants to get to the edge of that cliff. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, that's it. so how do you think you like make that connection between exotic pets and fascination with predators, with sharks, and conservation and sort of protecting biodiversity? How, how do you get folks to make that leap from sort of owning and opening their eyes to nature and noticing these things in their own backyard without owning them or possessing them. I think some people sort of come to that realization. They almost mature out of ownership and get to a point of respecting and appreciating the animals in their natural environment. But I think some people, like maybe they almost need a a growth step. Like you have to kind of, you don't have to, but a lot of people, myself, I used when I was in veterinary school, I had 14 snakes, three toads and a tortoise. And once you get into that world, you, you sort of become a little bit of a magnet. You're, You're not even necessarily looking for the animals, but someone says, Hey, I found a, I mean, literally when I was in living in West Philadelphia, someone said, Oh, I found a corn snake near a dumpster. And so I said, oh, take it to Lubart. And you know, so now I had another snake. That snake actually lived a long time in a, in a library in Naples, Florida. So I went through this stage where I guess I was feeling like that ownership put me closer to nature. And, and I think you can learn from it and then apply your knowledge to conservation. But I don't think you're really doing conservation when you keep animals in cages. You know, as I said, I don't, I don't have any of those animals now. I partly because I've moved and, and maybe because my job meets all those needs and then some, and I get to travel the world and see these animals and work with them and realize the value of preserving their habitat and, you know, their being. And I think, I guess, circling back to your question, Dan, I think if owning a captive bred leopard gecko or corn snake or redfoot tortoise gets people more invested in conservation, whether that's supporting conservation efforts financially or going to school, then it's a good thing. And I guess, you know, one of the things too that, your, Dan, your window on animal health, you know, you're, 
doing procedures on mostly captive animals and being able to use that as a launch pad. And of course, I mean, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic and we're actually open, you get huge crowds in front of them watching you do or, or on things like seeing a photo. I'd love to have seen it, Dan doing a procedure on a tarantula. You know, those are they're really deeply fascinating things. Being able to use that as a launch pad of, well, okay, here's what they are in the wild and here's the, the beauty of them as a, as a wild animal, not just a subject on a table. It's, it's, that story is there to be told, I suppose. I think another angle too, and this is, uh, this is something, Greg, that you're also really active with, not just exotic pets or, or pets, but, but wildlife. And uh, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about the turtle rescue team and, and kind of your involvement with wild animals and, and medicine with wild animals and sort of make that transition from, from pets to wildlife. Yeah, happy to talk about that. And I think in some ways exotic or the pet industry in general is this multi-billion dollar industry. And it, I mean, it drives a lot of efforts and zoos too. You know, I mean, most people know zoos as a place to go and, and see animals and, you know, mock habitats. And they've certainly gotten better and better and better. But they also provide a platform for conservation efforts that without that would be much harder to do. And so there, right. most zoos have like a, like a society or friends of a zoo, and then people donate money. And that money goes to efforts all over the world. Like our North Carolina Zoo went to Madagascar to help out with radiated tortoises. And if we didn't have the zoo, the, the brick and mortar zoo and people knowing about it, I think those things would be harder. And in a way, a veterinary school is like that our exotic pet service here, it provides employment for faculty and staff to live, you know, <laughs> eat, have a place, place. So then they can, then they can explore some of these other efforts like conservation. So the turtle team that Dan's talking about. So when I came here, in addition to being hired as a fish veterinarian, I had this strong interest in reptiles and amphibians. In fact, I actually had a herpetology class and had an evolution class and systematics and taxonomy seminar. So I was really kind of interested in those things. And when I came here, someone said, hey, Lubard, you're like, we hear you like reptiles. Do you want to teach the reptile lectures? And I said, sure. And so I, there was a pathologist doing it and he was happy to give them over to me. And then I started working with sea turtles when they would come in for surgeries. This was before there was a sea turtle hospital at the coast. And then I think in 1993, my first full year here, I think I saw 10 hit by car turtles. So someone would show up at the front door with a bleeding turtle. And, you know, this is a, you didn't have cell phones then, but we had pagers and they'd find me or call my office and I'd look at it and I, I was using my lab to kind of patch things together. And, and I would just grab a student in the hall or someone who had kind of s expressed an interest in, in zoological medicine, exotics, whatever you want to call it. And, but it was really catch as catch can. And then the next year that 10 became 30 turtles. And I started working with a local wildlife rehabilitator. And that next year it became, I think, 50 turtles and my lab was starting to overflow with turtles. <laughs> and uh, about that time, around 1996, um, the rehabilitator got transferred and had some money she had inherited from her dad and started this, what we call the turtle rescue team. So it was basically students with interest, a rehabber with some money, and my lab. And we started this student volunteer organization that's now seen about 7,000 cases. I actually look at the turtle rescue team and at the 7,000 cases as there's sort of a few priority areas. Number one, I think, is to teach veterinary students how to manage cases. And what they can learn managing a turtle, they can apply to other animals, even mammals. So they get case ownership. Turtles are tough. I mean, they're very resilient. They're pretty forgiving. They're quiet. They're stackable. Stackable. <laughs> usually, in their cages. Right. They usually <laughs> they're, they're generally 
not too aggressive. They don't carry rabies and things like that. So they're pretty safe. So I look at that as the main goal. And then next is, I think, research new knowledge, generating new knowledge and publishing results of studies that we do with these turtles. And that's really ramped up in the last five or six years. Um, So we, you know, in addition to being a clinic, we also, and it's not so much we do research on the turtles. We have had some projects where we have to have lab animal protocol approval, but it's a lot of it's retrospective. So someone looked, for instance, we just had a student publish a paper looking at 23 years of turtle box turtle admissions. And we know that we see box turtles about one day earlier every year on average. And we think that's because of global warming. Wow. So it's not related to why we see them, but that they're emerging earlier in the spring from hibernation and they're probably getting into trouble with people earlier. So that research can be done just on our database. And then the, the third thing is actually like we're not going to make or break box turtles in North Carolina. You know, even if we put a hundred out a year, we're not going to save the population. I'm hoping we're not going to hurt it. And we're certainly going to save some individual animals. Mm. You know, what's going to make or break these populations is saving their habitat. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. So I guess the, the fourth part is education. We have an outreach group of students. So, educating the public but snakes need a lot more help than turtles <laughs> mm-hmm. most people like turtles so that's the turtle team and dan was a as a student was one of the presidents of that group with one of his classmates so it's a very rewarding effort here and the students seem to to really like it what do you think the direct impact back to wildlife and back to conservation is like you, you said you, you get to collect data and, and actually publish on some of this work through helping these turtles how, how would you describe that impact so we're a little bit unique in that in the number of turtles we see and that's partly because we have this clinic that fortunately the school supports now the school supports it in terms of we don't pay an electric bill we don't pay rent um, it's voluntary volunteer, but, you know, I draw a salary. Kent, a technician who works with me, draws a salary. And it's since it's teaching and research, it's part of our job. So we have this, we see a lot of turtles and North Carolina has a lot of turtles. I think one of the things we provide is evidence-based information on the best way to handle turtles. Like the University of Illinois, Dan and I work closely with the people there. They have one of the best wildlife epidemiology labs in the country, if not the world. But we see way more turtles than they do in the clinic. So we share samples with them, deceased turtles, swabs of turtles, organs of turtles. And so I guess there's a ripple effect. I hope that the uh, information that we get out there into the literature on what we've learned, trial and error, do's and don'ts can help other people around the, even around the world. And then, you know, along with that help the wildlife in those areas. One thing that has been occurring to me, we talked about snakes and turtles and fish. We haven't talked at all about amphibians. Chytrid fungus is, is really all, all on our minds. Just wondering if, if you do work on amphibians and, and what sort of trends you might be seeing it's interesting you bring them up. I've always called them sort of the lost phylum, and that really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> well, lost phylum in, in the exotic pet world, like you would think, well, you know, they're higher up the evolutionary tree, I guess, than fish, but we see way more pet fish than we see pet amphibians. Interesting. You know, our clinic sees about um, 60% mammals, yeah, maybe 55 and about 20% birds and then 15% reptiles, actually. A lot of bearded dragons and geckos and snakes. And then the other 5% is what we call aquatic, but we see more fish than amphibians. Now, the, and the most amphibians we see are at institutions like 
like yours, like the museum. We work with a, a couple other museums and a small aquarium that have amphibians. People do bring, bring in pet frogs. We recommend screening pet amphibians for chytrid. And certainly we screen our in, the institutions we work with. We swab them for chytridomycosis. But I know it's a big global problem. I wouldn't say it's something that impacts our pet population very much. All right, sure. Is that what yeah. you think, Dan? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I, I agree. We, we screen for chytrid fungus and some other sort of amphibian disease issues, and we see it in captive populations. Sometimes we see it in animals that come in from the wild into captivity, but we're, as far as you know, our daily practice at the museum with our collection animals. Okay. Um, we're, we're not, we're not really dealing with that on a daily basis. And on an individual, for an individual, you can treat chytrid, can't you? And you just change its environment. Yeah, you can. So there, there's actually a good sort of in-hand treatment that works pretty well for chytrid for, for captives. It's just, you know, you can't broadcast those antifungals and those medications out into the environment. So that's, no. that's when we start to really get in trouble uh, is when it's out in these populations that are sometimes pretty pristine areas that, that don't seem to have a lot of you know human impact or a lot of problems, but the amphibians are just disappearing. And it, it seems to be linked to chytrid fungus. And there's a virus, a ranavirus, that's also a, a big problem in amphibians. I'm, I'm going to tie this in. Y'all haven't asked this, but okay, is that okay? We're yeah, 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 do it, it, do it. We're kind of <laughs> circling to it. And... Again, part of my job is treating people's pets and trying to educate them. And they're educating me too sometimes. So trying to educate each other on the, once we've decided that they're going to be in captivity, whether they were born in captivity or they were brought into captivity to give them the best life possible. But one of the real downsides of this pet exotic industry is invasive species. Oh, yes. And what... The really <laughs> immense horse out of the barn problems we we're up against now. If you think about the the pythons in the Everglades, mm. the lionfish in the ocean, the red-eared sliders, virtually globally, yeah. these are all from the pet trade, either intentionally or accidental introductions. And I mean, Florida. When, when I worked in Florida 30 years ago in the tropical fish industry, there was a guy who drove around and he had like a, it was like a bread truck. Remember those old bread trucks? Mm, sure. <laughs> and he had like oxygen tanks. And he made a living collecting invasive species and selling it back to the pet industry. Mm. So he didn't need a, think about it. He didn't need any kind of permit because he wasn't collecting native stuff. He was collecting Oscars, cichlids, Jack Dempsey's snails. All, and this was, this was 89, 90, 91 before I think pythons and boas had been introduced to the Everglades, but they certainly have taken off in the last 10 or 20 years. But the numbers are, are immense. But there's a, at least 50 species of fish, tropical fish established in Florida. Now, some of these fish are probably not, you know, there's introduced, I know there's a whole nomenclature for this and I'm not fluent in it, but there's introduced and then invasive. And I think invasive means you're, you've been introduced and you're procreating and having a negative impact on the wildlife. Yeah, displacing. Displacing. And that, yeah. that, that worries me. And then what got me thinking about it was chytrid. And then of course, ranavirus is one thing we always worry about is doing harm, right? That's sort of the, mm. the, the core of veterinary medicine is do no harm. And if we take an animal and then we put it in the wild and introduce something, that's a big fear. I'm, I'm not saying that happens a lot. It, it can happen. I'm sure it has happened, but um, that's a worry about any kind of wildlife rehabilitation. If you take an animal from the wild and bring it into a hospital, we all know that hospitals are, areas where infections can be transmitted, whether it's humans or animals. So that's a concern too about wildlife rehab. So here's a, an ethical question. If, if somebody brought in a, a hurt red-eared slider saying, you know, would you, what would you do? 
we've dealt with that. Right. In fact, we, I looked at one today. So, okay. So there's a couple of ways to look at it. So let's just say someone finds a red-eared slider on the belt line that got hit by a car. So clearly it was an animal that's been in the wild. We kind of walk the middle ground on these. It's not easy to find a home for those animals. We try to find a home if we can. We have released them back to where they came from. We don't kill them because they're invasive. Just like we don't kill pigeons and people don't kill pigeons and starlings, you know, mm. and English sparrows. But anyway, but we kind of have a plan. You probably know Brian Stewart. Yes. So he's your herpetologist. And yes. we've been working this summer with Brian because Brian, and we have been turning over red ear. Sometimes we hatch eggs from yellow belly sliders. And when they hatch out, they've got little pink ears. So we know that's a big problem. Well, we know it's a problem. Red-eared sliders hybridizing with yellow-bellied sliders in North Carolina ponds and lakes. So we turn those over to Brian, and he's been doing genetics research on them. And we were out in the field a month or so ago talking about this problem because we were trapping red-eared sliders in a pond. And the pond, the county pond owner wanted us to euthanize them. But we didn't have that in our protocol. And none of us really wanted to kill a bunch of turtles. Like we're all, we're all sort of animal lovers at heart. Sure. And so we microchipped them and put them back. But we've got it really, Brian asked, well, could you sterilize them? Right. Now, he's not a veterinarian. He was thinking, could you like irradiate them somehow? And I said, no, but we could sterilize them. I mean, Dan's done that. And that's been done before. So we are, we haven't started this, but we have a literally a big red-eared slider. She probably weighs about three kilograms. And in two weeks, we are going to sterilize her surgically. We're going to take out her ovaries and release her. So it's sort of a let the turtle live out its life, but not making more. I bet you there's a herpetologist would sit down here and tell me that's wrong and it should be euthanized. And I couldn't really argue against that. We're all sort of on a continuum somewhere. Yeah, Right. And, you know, all of these things, as we're discussing a lot of these questions, because there's probably plenty of people who are out there and say, no, you know, it's wrong even to go this step to sterilize. Yeah them you know so and and this gets right back to a whole lot of things we were talking about is the immense emotion that goes along with the the tension between the individual animal rights and the the population level considerations right and how they and of course because we're talking about pets and and the the value of an individual animal it's a very tricky path to to tread it's very gray, a lot right. of it. We don't shy away from these big questions on, <laughs> on love nature. I, I, right. I agree. I mean, I think it's good to, I mean, Dan and I have had conversations about fishing. I know this mm. isn't about fishing, but could be. when I'm talking yeah. about, let's say we're going to take a tumor off a of goldfish's back. Okay. So we're going to anesthetize the goldfish. In a, we put the anesthetic in the water and it goes to sleep. And then we're probably going to take a local anesthetic and inject it around the base of that tumor. And then we're going to take a sterile scalpel blade and remove that tumor. And then we're going to put some topical salve on it, you know, like an antimicrobial cream or something. We may even use radio surgery or cautery to get kill the cancer cells. And then we're going to give it a shot of a a pain medicine, right? An analgesic, right? Maybe a a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, maybe an opioid like morphine. And then we're going to wake it up and then we're going to monitor it for a while and send it home with the owner and check in on it. Maybe we get antibiotics if we thought it was infected or not. And then, then I'm going to get in my boat. I'm going to drag a treble hook through the ocean. I'm going to rip a Spanish mackerel out of, core sound and does not get in any any of those things right and 
people will ask me, well, do you eat fish? And I say, yeah, and I, and I catch them, but I'm, I've changed some things in the last, I, mean, I, I, I now don't put them in an ice box or anything. I, I bunk them. I have a bunker on my boat, a, a club. And I dispatch, if I'm going to keep them, I dispatch them quickly, you know, end their life quickly. And then, you know, and I, anybody that eats meat is sort of playing the game. Yeah. It's yeah. true. I mean, this is a big, right. that is a really big, and you know, I think, Dan, we should uh, we should address vegetarianism at some point in yeah, the future. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a really big, and, it's a big part of and it. And fish, kind of, kind of like Greg has said, even about medicine, fish get kind of left out of the conversation. So a lot of people, you know, it's like a continuum. They can really understand the the red meat when you're talking about a cow or a pig or you know an animal like that. It's like pretty easy to understand, but. A lot of folks, when you start talking about fish or even invertebrates, we haven't talked about arthropods and invertebrates mm, no. yet. So, I, but you know, we we've got those considerations too. So, yeah, and people say, "Well, I'm a pescatarian." Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. it. And look, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I would love it if fish didn't feel pain. That would be a great thing. I would feel better. I'd feel better about fishing. The fish would feel better. Mm. But that's not the way it is. I firmly believe fish feel pain. Now, you know, it's, you could argue what does that feel like, but I can tell you whatever it is, it doesn't feel good. They don't like having a hook in their lip, and they don't like even having a needle put under their skin. Dan knows that. Yeah. They react to that. So because there's a, there's a camp, I think it's shrinking. I don't know that for sure, where people with skin in the game, self-serving, they want to say, no, fish don't feel pain. But they do. Uh, there's no question right. in my mind they do. And I also believe you can alleviate yeah. that pain. I don't think we've really figured out the best way to do that. And, it, and with 30,000 species, there's probably not one, two, or even 10 ways. But it's just something I think about. I, and I've changed my ways. I, I really am not fishing as much as I once did. Dan and I also talked one time. And it's the first time I really thought about <laughs> catch and release fishing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. The first time Dan brought that up, Dan, I don't know, you might've even been a student here. I never thought about that as being worse than because you're an injured fish back into the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wins from that. I mean, it's a vanity, like love fly fishing, but, (laughs) but I know that's not what we're talking about exactly. But I think, it kind of ties in with animal welfare and conservation. Now that's look at hunting and fishing. I don't hunt, but I'm not against hunting. A lot of the money that drives wildlife conservation is from fishers and hunters. Absolutely. No, that's right. A lot of protected areas come from, from that, not just in North America, but other continents as well. Africa, definitely. That's a big, big thing. I think that's all, part of the conversation you know it's it's the yeah. way people see nature and see wildlife and and i think you know we've talked about a lot of ways that individuals connect with wildlife or exotic animals it, it's like all the same message though that they really need or we need that connection but i, I think we're kind of meeting it in different ways so I, I do think it's part of the conversation and it's also an interesting thing too about the measures we use to decide whether it's okay to kill something or okay to right one of them is feeling pain another one is intelligence so you know i mean this is like scandinavian dolphin harvest notwithstanding you know there's there's a whole lot of uh, argument that i mean for instance do do fish have all the same legislative protections that other vertebrates do and do invertebrates you know you can spray all the native spiders and mosquitoes and everything in your house that you want to. And it's not a concern. I'm glad it's not because I don't like having mosquitoes in my house, but you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, some, we, we, we measure the ethics of damaging another life form based on how close it is to our lived experience. Right. And that's, that's a, whole other conversation to have yeah. really, I, in a way. 
I think even as a veterinarian, like like Greg can speak to this, like being a veterinarian that that looks at and focuses on these some people call them lower species, looking at reptiles and amphibians and and even arthropods and invertebrates, just by giving them the time of day to examine them and consider their welfare and their health, it it gives us as veterinarians a different perspective even than other veterinarians. There are plenty of veterinarians that would not think twice about an arthropod or an invertebrate or even a fish in in medicine. I did something yesterday. So I I don't know. I think when you look, when you're used to looking for turtles and things on the road, like you see everything and, and I guess you'll like this. So I was driving <laughs> only a mile from my house yesterday and what's in the middle of the road, but a swallowtail butterfly that had been probably hit, yeah. but it, I could see it was kind of fluttering. Yeah. So I turned around. Oh, wow. I'm glad I didn't have anybody in the car. And I threw on my four ways and I jumped out and I scooped it up. It was alive and it was kind of like flopping away from me. And I scooped it up, threw it in the car, got in the car. And then it, it jumps on my arm and then crawls up my shoulder and onto my ear. Now I'm driving down the road with, and it's left thing was like, of voles that was like dislocated and turned. And I, I have pictures and video. So I got home and I remember from the museum. Yeah. Martha had imped imped. That's a term used that some uh, raptor rehabbers use to put feathers. They glue feathers onto, onto birds of prey to help them fly while their feathers are growing out. Well, she had imped a butterfly from your conservatory. And I thought, I wonder, so I don't know. I was, I wanted to do something knowing it probably wouldn't end well. And I, I got the butterfly and I had to my house and I kind of looked at Martha's images and I got out some super glue and I was able to, and there was a little hemolymph coming out too. That's, that's the blood. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 For our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yes. And I thought, oh, that's not good. So I put a little of the super glue in the spot where the blood was coming out. And then I glued the wing. They have, Dan knows, Dan's an entomologist, but they have the two uh, parts of the wing on each side. And I glued yeah. the broken part to the under part. And it actually looked pretty good. And... Uh, <laughs> I put the, we have a butterfly bush at our house and there was a swallowtail feeding there. And I put her out, her, I don't know, put it out there last night and I'm going to check it when I get home. Oh, right. I'm not, I'm not suggesting people should stop on the road. And And especially not in dangerous places. We'll just be clear. (laughs) But I do think that Dan probably joins me. I know Dan does because he started the invertebrate club here is that, I think we sort of go into this with our eyes pretty, pretty wide open right. and, and pretty much like we're going to do what we can when we can for, for all animals. Amazing yeah. perspective. And, really. You know, cause Eric, here's the thing. If you look at this profession, this profession started to take care of horses the modern veterinary profession to take care of military animals and working animals. And then later probably food animals or at about the same time, you know, not pets. Mm. Right. And even, even before world war two, most veterinarians were large animal vets and it would be, Hey doc, Fido's while you're looking at, while you're pulling the calf out of my cow, Fido's been limping or has been scratching and that sort of started morphing into taking care of of dogs and cats. When I was in vet school, you know, reptile, there was no reptile veterinary society that started 30 years ago. Mm. There was no fish veterinarian society. Dan and I are members of these groups and Dan helped found the honeybee veterinary consortium. Honeybees. Wow. That's all. <laughs> that's another that's right. for your show. But seriously, yeah, that is one of the hottest areas of our profession right now. Standing right. room only when you could go to conferences in person, 200, 300 people. And I mean, there's some good reasons for that. 
two that I can think of. One, the FDA officially made honeybees food animals in 2017. And so if you're a food animal in the United States and you're sick and you're going to get an antibiotic, you've got to go through a licensed veterinarian. So that, and then a lot of veterinarians are also apiarists, right? They keep honeybees. So it's kind of like, oh, wow, I can blend my hobby and my vocation. So there's a lot of interest from vets that keep bees. I, I need to know, and we, we will we'll have to have a whole show based on honeybees, but just while we're here, how do you administer antibiotics to a honeybee? Dan, I'll let you take that. Good question. So, so, and Greg, you know, Greg will speak to this too. A lot of what we learn about dogs and cats and, and medicine and even human medicine, a lot of what we do with these stranger species or exotic species or invertebrates is apply that and apply what we know. So mm-hmm. honeybees, like with any arthropod or, or any any other bug, you've got to know sort of the differences of, of how they work and how they act, a little bit of anatomy and physiology, but then the concepts of medicine, you know, are, are applied really in the same ways. And so with honeybees, instead of individual honeybees, we're, we're usually looking at you know, the hive is an organism. And so right. they, you know, right. when you're, when you're treating them, when you're collecting samples, a lot of times samples are a handful of bees from the colony. And so you're a lot of times not looking at individuals, looking at the group. When you treat them at the same, it's the same way. You're either going to treat the hive. You're either going to do things that get to everyone in the hive, either contact where they walk through things. It might be applied to a solution that they're going to drink with, you know, that they're going to eat or drink and ingest uh, is another way that we get medicines to them. But it's really cool when you, when you really think about honeybees, it, the medicine and the management part is really not any different than managing a dog or a cat. You know, as a veterinarian, we go in, we observe, we collect samples, we get diagnostics, we look for you know, ectoparasites, things that are on them, mites, you know, that's a common problem here with yeah. honeybees. Um, look for viral components, you know, bacterial components that are a problem. And a lot of times it's a matter as a veterinarian, just being open-minded, right? Right, Greg, do you agree? Yeah. Just kind of walk up and use your skills. And, and it's amazing how similar these things can yeah. actually be. And I think to work in this area, let's just call it since exotic animal areas so non-domestic stranger species, if you will, you yeah. have to, it's not for everyone. And I get that. And I see it in my students. I mean, some students, they're wide open. They're like, okay, well, I saw that once in this, or I'll try that. But some, some students are, um, and, and people in general, they're a little more traditional. And that's good too. I think if we were all one way, it wouldn't be good. But some people are like, yeah, I I need a little more. I need to be able to look up the dose for that honeybee for that drug, or I need to be able to look it up for that damselfish. And if, if they can't, they're not going to feel comfortable jumping in. Whereas I think for some of us, we gather what we know and we approach colleagues too. I mean, that's another thing that's changed really a lot with electronic communication is quick access to a collective brain trust. Like Dan and I are on some listservs. You could say, wow, I've never seen a black tip shark spin twice before. Let me see if anybody else has. <laughs> right. And yeah, then right. we sort of get what we can extrapolate what we know frequently from domestic animals. And a lot of times what we can like in fish medicine there's a lot of information out there on catfish and salmon because, of course, of, yes. right? They're so important economically for food mm. that a lot of times we can extrapolate work that's been done on those species to a patient in front of us. So, you know, there's a lot of sometimes we're, we're working with a little bit of a thin layer of knowledge and sometimes a, quite a bit more. And to do this, you've got to be comfortable in those arenas. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Greg Lubart, Professor of Aquatic Medicine at the North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you, guys. Thanks, yeah, Eric. Thanks, and have a good one. Be safe. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Yeah, same here. Thanks. Great. 
Thank you for listening to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. You can listen or subscribe at anchor.fm slash the Biophilia Podcast, or you can come to our website, naturalsciences.org. You can also visit the museum in beautiful downtown Raleigh. Details on our website.